psalmist tells us, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. How many of you got up this morning and you jumped out of bed and you said, I am glad that they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. How many of you got up and went, well, I was up way too late last night. Anybody else? You can't even raise your hands, you're so sleepy. Some of you are yawning and carrying on. <clears throat> Have you ever heard the term that you want to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Anybody ever hear that? That's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray first, though, okay? Father, wake us up. Wake us up not only for the worship service this morning, as you've already done, as we've just been led so beautifully in worship, but Lord, wake us up to who you want us to be and what you want us to do as a church in this coming year. Wake us up to the potential that you have for every one of us who know you as Lord and Savior, and wake us up, Lord, to a kind of life that will give us hope and joy and peace and love that we've been talking about through this Advent season. Speak to us today, Lord, but don't entertain us. Speak to us, Lord, but challenge us in ways that shake us to the very core and bring us to who we need to be and drive us to what we need to be doing. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. How many of you had some really good food over the last week? Anybody? Raise your hand. How many of you had some really mediocre food over the course of the last week? Raise your hand. How many of you, when you got that mediocre food, looked at the person who gave it to you and said, quote, this is really kind of mediocre food? Anybody? If you did, don't admit it and raise your hand and let us know who you really are, right? You see, we settle for mediocrity a lot in our lives. I'm wandering around up here. I'll try not to trip over your all stuff. Okay. We settle for mediocrity. I had both those experiences last week. I had some of the most awesome food I've had in the last 10 years at one sitting, and I had a real kind of mediocre meal at a restaurant. But when the waitress came over and said, how was everything? I said, it was awesome. It was great, you know? And the reality was it wasn't great. It was just mediocre. And I wonder in our Christian lives how many of us, when we look back at the year 2016 and our brothers and sisters would walk up to us during the greetings today and say, hey, you know, how was 2016? We would say, oh, it was great, you know? It, it, it was really awesome, but in fact, it was just mediocre. It was just like a lot of other years that we've allowed to pass through in our life. And, and it's not really what God wants for us, and it's definitely, I don't believe, what God wants for us as a church. And so today, and coming through the whole month of January, we're going to talk about how to move from surviving to thriving, to be how to be the extraordinary church that God has called us to be. And I want to start out today just talking a little bit about that whole idea of being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know, for forever, I thought that was a West Virginia term. I grew up squirrel hunting with my dad, and, and they always talked about the bushy-tailed squirrel and the bright-eyed squirrel. And, and, and it wasn't until later in life when I got a little more educated that I discovered that was a fox hunting term from Britain that's been around forever and ever. To look for a healthy fox, you looked for one with a bushy tail and with bright eyes, and that's the one you wanted to, to set loose and to give the dogs the, the greatest challenge of the hunt, if you will. But when I think of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I think of my third child, my youngest daughter, Casey. Because Casey had both of those characteristics. She was, in my mind, kind of, kind of bright-eyed. She was always aware, always alert, always seizing opportunities in front of her. As a matter of fact, when Casey talked to you at two years old, if she was talking to you and, and, and she didn't have your attention, she would literally grab your face and turn your face toward hers. 
and make you look at her. And she still, at 18 years old, does that today. It's none of this, dad's not listening. Dad will listen if she wants dad to listen. Because she'll turn your face and say, listen to me. She's always been alert, always paid attention. But then she always also had this kind of bushy tail quality, wanted to live life to its fullest, was an explorer, wanted to try things out she'd never tried before, was willing to take risks and, and be daring and all those sort of things. And when I think about those two characteristics, I think how, how having one without the other can really kind of get us in trouble, can it? People who are always ready to rush in on something but they're not alert enough to pay attention, get themselves in trouble. Maybe they're ready to go on an adventure at every moment, but that adventure could end up taking their life or causing them a lot of harm because they don't think about it or they don't have, have kind of a reasoning that goes along with it. But then there are others who are bright-eyed, but they don't have any dare, they don't have any risk, and so they think everything to death. And so to me, I think it's a very good thing for us to try to have this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kind of quality. And, and, and for us to develop that, I, I think we need to, to have that dare and that risk and that common sense that God gives us to think and plan and, and reason and do those kinds of things. And so today I want to talk to you, looking at Nehemiah, about how we need to open our eyes and then do something. How we need to be alert, but then do something. The church really today is in need of renewal. And you can call it revival if you want. You can call it renewal if you want. You can call it transformation if you want. But all of this speaks to something that none of us like to hear about. All of this speaks to something that we would rather not talk about in the church, sometimes not talk about at work, not talk about in our community, and revival, renewal, transformation, all of that has one thing in common, and that thing is this. Are you ready for the word? Change. And so I'm going to, because I'm an outsider and I can just get in my car and go home, I'm going to talk about change every Sunday for five weeks in a row. Because I believe that one of the greatest reasons for our settling for mediocrity in the church is our unwillingness to change and experience what God really has for us. I got myself in trouble when I was younger in ministry. I, I got called to do a revival. I'd never done a revival before. I was thrilled, you know. So I went to this little country church outside of Parkersburg and I had all these sermons together and I was going to drive this church into getting out in the community and doing all these great things. And so I came up with this idea and I, I say I because I'm not sure the Holy Spirit really did give this one to me. And I, I decided I would take a bottle of soda pop a bottle of grape soda pop, to be exact, because I could food collar water and make it look right. And, and so I dumped all the, the, the uh, purple knee-high out of this two-liter bottle, and I put collared water in it and sealed it back up, and I went down on the front row where there was about six 75- to 90-year-old ladies sitting. And I said, Christianity is like this. we got to get shaken up, if you will, on the inside. And I walked back and forth, and I shook this bottle pop up in front of them. And they began to watch it very closely as I walked in front of them. And I said, not only does God shake us up on the inside, not only does he stir us up on the inside, but he also wants to take the cap off. And when he takes the cap off, the very natural things that happen is all the stuff going on in us kind of spews all over everybody else. And so I aimed right at those ladies and I pulled the cap off. It was only collared water, but three of them had to go to the hospital because of heart. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't. 
But I was told by the deacons later, we don't do those sorts of things around here during our sermons. But I do think I made the point. I don't think they forgot it for the rest of their lives. But the fact is, it's true. God wants to shake us up. God wants to renew us. God wants to change us. And when he does that, we can change the world on his behalf. We can change the world through his power. Why is the church not changing the world, folks? Why is the world? Everybody I know who's in the church talks about how the world's not where it ought to be. Our country's not where it ought to be. Our communities aren't where they ought to be. Why are we as a church not making the kind of difference that we all know we could? Well, I believe we need to ask a question. And this is a question I'm going to challenge you to ask over the next five weeks, and it is this. What and or how is God calling me to change? I do these Renew conferences now around in many different churches, and, and I go in and I work with churches, and, and inevitably someone always stops me at the door, and they say something like this, Pastor, that was an awesome lesson. That was an awesome sermon. There are so many people in this church that needed to hear that today. And I'm like, you missed it. Because it's not so many others who need to hear this in the church. It's Ed Rogers that needs to hear this in the church. It's you that needs to hear this in the church. Don't worry about how everyone else needs to change. How do you need to change? What and or how is God calling me to change? Go with me to Nehemiah. We're going to stay in Nehemiah for five weeks. I want you to start out in chapter 1. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage of scripture starting in verse 1. says this, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, Now what I want you to see here, church, is this. I want you to see that For us really to be that extraordinary church, that extraordinary follower of Jesus Christ, to do those things he wants us to do, we've got to realize that what we do for Christ 
is directly related to our ability to see the big picture. Now, look at what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah, if you know the story, is, is in exile. Nehemiah has never been to the promised land. He's grown up in exile, and he really has a, a pretty good position in exile. Yes, his people are in slavery, but he is cupbearer to the king. He's about as good as you can get in his society of the day. And he has things that take his attention every single day. He has a job that he has to do. He has people that he spends his day with. He has things that, that I'm sure bring him joy and, and other things that bring him sadness, just like all of us do. But in the midst of his just kind of routine, daily life, he gets these visitors. And he asks this question that changes his life and changes the course of the lives of people back in Jerusalem for years and years to come. It is, how are things over there? How are things back in Jerusalem? How are the people doing back in Jerusalem? You see, for maybe the first time, he begins to see something beyond Clarksburg. He begins to see something beyond Parkersburg. To see something beyond our church and to say, there's something going on over there that I need to do something about. There are people in distress. There are people who are dying, people who need to know the Lord and need to know His will. God calls us every single day to see beyond ourselves, to broaden our view. In Proverbs 29, 18, we've heard this over and over and over again in the church. Where there is no revelation, NIV says, King James says vision. It really is more revelation. It's not what we see, but it's what God reveals to us. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. What does it really mean for our own change in Christ as individuals and as a church to see the big picture? Well, the first thing we need to understand is when we see the big picture, it calls us into the future. Listen to me. Every person I know who is stuck in the past does have no idea what really is going on around them in the world. They're stuck in what they wish it was, or still is, celebrating what used to be, and as a result are missing the opportunities for what they could do right here, right now, in the culture and the community and the world that God has placed them. The big picture always calls us into the future. Everybody's story in the Bible is about movement. If you show me a story in the Bible that is not about God taking someone from where they are to where God wants them to be, I'll be shocked. I don't know where it's at. Because every single story is about, here I am, Lord, where do I need to go? Who do I need to become? What do I need to do? Old Testament, New Testament, everybody is being moved by God. Everybody is being transformed by God. Everybody is being renewed by God, revived by God. Everybody is being changed by God from what used to be and what is to what ought to, what can, and what should be. And, and we're talking here in this transformation not just about what we want to happen, not about our own sight, but what are God's dreams for us? What are God's desires for us? What is God's call upon us? And that call kind of involves two things, if you will. It involves who we are, our character, and it involves what we do, our conduct. So God's call involves who we are and what we do. 
And in this transformation, we walk toward something. We walk toward who we are becoming. We walk toward what we're going to do. In Philippians 3, 12 through 15, you know this scripture, right? Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I what? Press on. Say that with me, will you? I what? Press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straightening toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I love this verse that follows it up. All of us who are what? Is it up there? All of us who are what? Mature should take such a view of things. So in other words, if you are mature in your faith, this is the way you look at things. You look at the big picture that's calling you forward to who you are and what you need to be doing in Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, we get a little bit more instructions on this. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, right? Which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So, so let's wrap all of this up and in, in looking kind of in a biblical Old Testament uh, illustration. When God came to the Israelites... And he said, I'm going to take you to the promised land. Right? <clears throat> when he put that in Abraham's family, in Abraham's head. And, and Abraham began to spread the vision to his people. This is where we're headed. What happened? Well, they began to dream about what it was going to be like when they got there. It's a land of what? Milk and honey. What is that? It's a dream of what it's going to be like when we get there what we're moving toward, <clears throat> why we're leaving where we were and going to where God wants us to be. What is your dream that God has placed in your heart? What is your dream as a church that God has placed in your heart that is not a mediocre dream, that is not a business-as-usual dream, that is not a we-just-want-to-make-sure-we-keep-the-doors-open-and-do-things-like-we've-always-done-them dream, we want to make sure we don't lose anybody dream, but it is, how are we going to set the world on fire dream with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church? What is God or who is God calling you to be and what is God calling you to do? And we could add to this beginning now and moving on until you go and be with him. Nehemiah chapter 2, if you move forward with me just a little bit. He arrives in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he sees the big picture. He does something about it. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, that's bad over there. Let's pray for those folks. He risks his life. He risks his station. He leaves everything he knows to be dear to his life. And he goes to do something about it. And in chapter 2 and verse 11, when he arrives in Jerusalem, we, we see these words. <clears throat> it says, I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the Jakala wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews 
or the priest or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. I like to refer to this as Nehemiah's vision ride. He's walking or riding around looking at the walls. And if you were to ask people what's he doing, they would say this, most of them. He's looking at how bad things are. But I don't believe for a minute that's what he's doing. I believe he's looking at what things are going to be when they get to work. Matter of fact, it says, you see that little key in that verse at the end? I had not told all these people yet what was going on. How does he describe them? These people who are going to do the work. There's no doubt in his mind that God's going to do something extraordinary. There's no doubt in his mind that God's going to make these dreams become real. And so what I would say to you as a church and what I would say to me as a Christian and to everybody I know who follows Christ, why in the world do we not believe in the dreams that God has placed in our hearts? Why do we not believe that we can transform this country? Why do we not believe that we can transform this community? Why do we not believe that we can transform our own families through the power of Christ and the witness that he places in our hearts and the work that he gives us to do? Why have we bought into the lie that we have to be mediocre? Well, I think one of the reasons is this. The big picture is so often hampered by fear of losing what we already have. We're so afraid to move forward because if we do, we may lose what we already have. I raised some absolutely, unbelievably conservative daughters. I have three girls. I have one who's 26, one who's 24, and one who's 18. And I can't believe how conservative they are on all kinds of things. We lived in the same little house and raised all three of those girls in Parkersburg. Year and a half, almost two years ago, my wife and I told our then 24-year-old, 22-year-old, and almost 17-year-old daughters, we're going to sell our house and move. And we got disowned by all three of them. You can't sell our home, right? There's no way we can go to a new place at this point in our life. You had thought we absolutely just destroyed their entire future because mom and dad were going to move. Two of them were already out of the house. They didn't even live there anymore. Right? But we were putting change on them that they didn't like. How many times do you suppose in your life you have talked yourself out of doing something that would have been extraordinary because you were afraid of losing something that was mediocre? Why in the world do we do that? Why in the world do we settle? Ron Heifetz, who does some leadership stuff, says, it's not a scriptural or a, uh, a um, spiritual thing, but I think it's very applicable to the church. He says that there are kind of two views that we have. And he, he relates it to a dance floor. And he says if you were to go and pick a couple of people out of a dance and ask them to describe the surroundings, and you picked one young lady who was down on the dance floor dancing with the love of her life, and you would say to her, you know, describe the dance floor, she would describe her, her love standing right in front of her and holding her close. But he said, if you took someone out of the balcony who was standing up there by themselves watching everyone dance and you asked them to describe what's going on, they would give you a much different perspective. And what he says in organizations is the, way, the reason we mess up in business, we mess up in nonprofits, and I think even in the church, is we have either that view or this view, and we don't understand both. We've got to get that bigger view that God wants us to get, that it's not just about us. It is some about us. 
God loves us. God wants me to, to know I'm loved. God wants me to be loved through the challenges in my life. But that's not all it's about. It's much bigger than that. But if it's only about me, that's where we fight over the music. If it's only about me, that's where we leave and go to the church that has a better preacher. If it's only about me, that's where we start to have these conversations that don't sound Christ-like at all. Because we miss that view up there that says, what is God doing and what can I do to join him in the midst of this work? Why settle for mediocre? Skipping through my notes because I'm way behind. Something else that happens in this big picture, and that is this. The big picture always drives us to some need. When, when you look into Scripture and you see God expanding the vision of these folks and moving them from where they are to where he wants them to be, there's always some need involved. Some need that God wants to meet in somebody or, or some group of people. Something he wants to do that, that he wants these folks to join in on. And so for me, in the next five weeks, I want us not only to ask, who, are we, who does God want us to be and what does God want us to do, but, but what is the need beyond yourself today that God has already revealed to you? What is the need that God is speaking into your heart that needs to be met by you in some way? And then how willing are you to sacrifice what you want for what someone else needs? We had... At South Parkersburg Baptist Church, we started a satellite campus about 11 years before I left. And it was started in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, if anybody know where that is. It's where the Mothman lives. And we started a satellite campus down there and with a group of individuals who wanted to reach the community. And in the first meeting with the church back at South Parkersburg, I'll never forget, one dear old saint looked at me and said, you know what, I think this is an awesome opportunity, but here's what I'm concerned about. If you're down there working with those people, who's going to take care of me? And, you know, God bless him. I understand he has needs that need to be taken care of. But God bless the other people who said, it's not about me. There are people down there that need to know Jesus. And you know what? If it means the pastors may not visit me as often, but it means someone else goes to heaven, that's fine with me. Y'all go ahead and do that. And you know, in the first two years in that satellite campus, we baptized 50 people who received the Lord. That was more than we baptized in the church in Parkersburg. And it was about a tenth the size. God did amazing things because people said, all right, it's not about me. Let's go down there and do that thing. And it wasn't me doing it. They went and did it. We had over 100 people in Point Pleasant working in that satellite in the first year from Parkersburg in some way. Some way down there working to make a difference. What is God calling you to do? Where is the need that God has placed upon your heart? And then let me not stop before I say this. The big picture is also directly related to the past. See, one of the, the failures that my people make, and they're really not my people anymore. I used to say that, and I'm talking about the younger generation of leaders in the church. Unfortunately, I crested that 50-year mark, and I'm not near as young as and identify with those folks as I used to. But the fact is, so many of my colleagues in ministry 
are very disrespectful of the past as they try to pull people into the future. And never in Scripture does God ever call us to disrespect those that have gone before us in order to move on to where he wants us to go next. We always are eating grapes from the vineyards that others have planted. We always are building upon the work that other people have done. You can look at Joshua 24, 14. It tells us, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them, you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. We have our own great cloud of witnesses. You have your own great cloud of witnesses here in this church, and you honor them not by keeping things the way they set them up, but you honor them by staying true to the dream that they had to reach people for Jesus Christ and to make a difference in the world. Their dream was not the methodology. Their dream was not about how to serve me. If it was, it wasn't a godly dream. But the dream was about doing something extraordinary for God. And we build upon that as we honor what they did, not as we disrespect what they did. And we respect what they did most when we build upon it and do what God calls us to do now. Do you see the big picture? The future-oriented, past-honoring, need-based big picture. If you do, then you've got a chance to move beyond mediocrity to extraordinary. If you don't, you have no chance. Because it will only be about this little circle. What I like, what I want, what I need. That is not a good life, folks. God wants much, much more for you. Join me in a word of prayer.